Well, I want I want to thank James for uh, those kind words of welcome and to thank the ICA also for hosting this evening's event uh, and Peter Taylor for being once again my inquisitor. Uh, a couple of other people, if I may, Steve McDonough, who, who published this book, is, is here this evening and Lisa Dewan has given up her birthday to be with us. She's been looking after us all day. And uh, Jane Fisher, who's here from the Sinn Féin office in London, and Richard McCauley, who's here anyway. Uh, so is anyone here from Ireland? Okay. So we're outnumbered again. <laughs> anyway, Gunn Yuri and Talev, Tamago Han, Han Sasta, Ve Livsha, August, and Kanshwi and Lior Nua, August, we star, Sinn Féin, August, we, and Iceland, Sinn Féin, August, Roddy Alan Martian, August, Mara Dirt James, Nurabe May Kriknaha, Yanni Midge Desbrocht. Sinn Féin was founded this month, on the 28th of this month, 100 years ago, in Dublin, in the, the Rotunda. If you're ever in Dublin, uh, O'Connell Street, and you'll see the Parnell Monument, and behind it, I think it's now the Ambassador Cinema, is where Sinn Féin was uh, founded. And it, it came together at a very difficult time in Ireland. Ireland was crippled. Ireland was devastated. What, what we watch when we see famine-stricken parts of the developing world was Ireland then. The population had been halved by Angorta Moor, the Great Hunger. Uh, millions had fled to here, to Scotland, to the USA, to Australia. Uh, Millions died in boreens and in little villages and in fever hospitals and quarantine camps. The Irish language was a mark of poverty. You came to London speaking Irish, what use was it to you? You go to the States speaking Irish, what use was it to you? National morale, there was no national morale. And I think what marked the people out who, who, who came together in 1905 to form Sinn Féin was that they had a notion that things didn't have to be like that, that it could be different. And they weren't all Republicans. In fact, Republicans were probably the minority. Uh, the man who is, I suppose, set aside as the founder of Sinn Féin, Arthur Griffith, was a monarchist. He wasn't a Republican. He, he wanted to see home rule, but he wanted to see it within uh, broader British rule. But the Republicans at war there, uh, probably in the short years between 1905 and 1916, came into their own. Some of them actually were home rulers. Podrick Pierce, one of the leaders of the 1916 Rising, at that point in his life was a, was a home ruler. Uh, 
there are lots of factors involved in the evolution and the development of politics, the outbreak of the First Great War, uh, the Conscription Act, and so on and so forth. But what mostly happened was that there was a flowering of various organizations who had the sort of vision that Sinn Féin encapsulated politically. That is, that things could be different. So you had women's organizations coming together. You had women's organizations being formed. You had Conrad the Gilga, the Irish language uh, movement being formed. You had uh, a reclaiming of the Irish language and poetry and drama in both Irish and English. And you had uh, a renaissance against the background which I have uh, described. The modern mission statement of Irish republicanism is the 1916 proclamation. And, and I would actually ask people here to get a copy of it. It is a remarkable document. Republicanism goes back further. It goes back 200 years to the American War of Independence, the American Revolution, the French Revolution. And you know, clearly what republicanism is about is citizenship. Is that the people are sovereign at, at a time of kings and queens and royalty and so on. It's, a, it's of a different dimension of an egalitarian society. So what, what the 1916 proclamation did was, was, if you like, make that relevant to 1916. And I'll just spend a moment or two on this. It addressed itself to Irish men and Irish women. At a time when Irish women, and indeed when women everywhere, didn't even have a vote. It, 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 it called on till, it, it, it struck for freedom, it declared a republic until that could be ratified by the universal suffrage of the men and women. So here, even on, on the gender issue, at, at a time when that wasn't in most people's vocabulary, the revolutionaries were very far-sighted. The rest of the proclamation deals with, I suppose, big concepts. The ownership of Ireland belongs to the people of Ireland. It's anti-sectarian, oblivious of the differences, carefully fostered by an alien government which has divided a minority from a majority in the past. It, it proclaimed the right to civil and religious uh, liberties, and so on. And for those of us who write, it succeeded in doing it all in one page. So I would, I would just commend it to you to take it down and, and, and look at it or to go and get a copy of it and, uh, and look at it. Now, the, the raising was Christ. We were just talking briefly beforehand, myself and Peter. It became known as the uh, Sinn Féin Rising, though it wasn't the Sinn Féin Rising. And the Republican proclamation was much, much, much more advanced than the concepts which underpinned the foundation of Sinn Féin uh, 11 years previously. But I still think that Arthur Griffiths deserves credit for, for, for bringing about that remarkable gathering of people. And I suppose the core, the core value of Sinn Féin, which was encapsulated by that broad movement, 
was the notion of self-reliance. In other words, that Ireland could sort out our own affairs. Ireland could have self-government, or Ireland could, 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 I suppose, look after our own destiny. Now, with the suppression of the rising, the execution of the leaders, a number of things happened. And I think it, 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 it tells a bit of the story. No one survived the rising at leadership level who had been involved in the teaching or the writings that underpinned the proclamation. Not one survived. So a woman called Maura Comerford in her little book about all of this, looking at what happened to republicanism, said what I have just said and pointed out that some of those who later came into the leadership were not republicans, never had been republicans in the sense of the, uh, of, of, of the word and in the context of the proclamation. And of course then we had a civil war. We actually had two civil wars. We had a civil war in the South, which was vicious and which is rarely taught. I don't, is it taught in the school, Steve, in the, the South? No. Vicious, vicious civil war. Uh, and we had a civil war in the North. We had the, the partition of the island and all that has flowed from it since. So Sinn Féin has survived in various bits and pieces since. Uh, other parties, most of the, the big parties in the South take their, uh, they, are, they are children of the Sinn Féin parent. Féin Afoil was a, a breakaway uh, section. Fine Gael was, was the same. So, without being too pompous, it's, it's my notional view that Irish Republicanism is only relevant if it's relevant in our time. And this isn't 1905, and this isn't 1916. This is 2005. So Irish Republican has to be, while preserving its principles and its objectives, has to, to remodel itself and reshape itself to suit the Ireland of today. And what we're about, and I want to deal with this in two, two, two slices, in, in the first case, we're about building political strength. We leave aside 30 years of conflict. I'm sure we'll return to that later. We're about building political strength for the Republican position, for the Republican vision. And we're about building a political party, which is very difficult to do. It's very difficult to do to, to, to actually build a party, an ideological party, and to build support for it, and, and to structure it, and to, to get the training and the organization and the publicity and the education and all that goes with it, party discipline, all of those different aspects. We're about doing that. And we're, of course, about a united Ireland. But we're about change now. And what I try to spell out in, in this book is we don't have to wait. We don't have to wait for a united Ireland for people to have equality. In, in, in the southern part of the island, there is the largest exchequer surplus consistently in the history of the state. 
and yet we have decrepit hospitals, uh, a two-tier health system, uh, educational infrastructure and buildings, which is just not up to today's needs, never was up to modern needs, and various other big dimensions of inequality, in that the southern state, outside of the USA, has the widest gap between rich and poor of any industrialized state in the western uh, part of the world. So we're about trying to bring about change now. And we're about, as we, as we develop our political strength through campaigning and through electoralism and so on, we are about trying to build in the North, more or less, with a different political reality, in the same stream. And we're about trying to build so that when we get a United Ireland, that we can have the possibility of a Sinn Féin government. That, 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 that through this phase of struggle, Sinn Féin activists learning the ropes, learning from their own life experience, building the party, can have the possibility of a different Sinn Féin. And indeed, it may be a different United Ireland from the kind that people traditionally may have imagined would, would emerge. So th they are what we're at as a party. Uh, at the same time, we negotiate with at least three governments, the British, the Irish governments, and occasionally the US government, and the other political parties on the island of Ireland. And particularly, we have a huge challenge in terms of the unionist section of our people. So I would, I would summarize, and this is the second stream of what we're at, leaving aside the whole need to build a political party which can do what I have just outlined. The three big tasks that we have are to bed down the peace process, to cover fastness, to, to give people a sense that, that there can be stability and uh, an absence of violence. And I think we've seen remarkable progress in that regard over the last uh, number of months. The next big task is to hold the two governments to their obligations so that we see the delivery, the rollout of the Good Friday Agreement. And then the third big task in that new dispensation is to move forward into a united Ireland. And arguably, the need through all of that in terms of getting confidence about the peace process getting the Good Friday Agreement rolled out and moving towards United Ireland, the biggest challenge is the engagement with unionism. And I think that uh, more and more that Republicans have to open ourselves up to the notion of proactively listening to unionism. I think it's easy because, you know, with respect, unionists do behave at times in a very irrational way, a very illogical way. And it's, it's easy to be dismissive or annoyed or scared uh, or just puzzled. But I think we have to try and figure out exactly why they behave in this way. And without patronizing anyone, trying to, to just get our heads around all of that. So I think it's, it's necessary to think big thoughts. Uh, if I say to an Irish audience, uh, can you imagine Ian Paisley being in government with Sinn Féin? 
They, they either laugh, don't answer, are puzzled, but, but don't, don't really imagine that such a thing uh, is, is possible. Well, whether it is possible is a matter for Ian Paisley, but it is possible to construct the conditions in which unionism can be in government with Sinn Féin. And you know, how we do that and, 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 and how we proceed to bring that about isn't just a big responsibility to the two governments, although I don't for one moment underestimate the need for Tony Blair to be very, very focused on his responsibilities, but it's a big responsibility and a big obligation uh, for us. Now, there are lots of other issues. You know, what sort of Ireland do we want? Uh, what, what, what will people understand to have changed? Because while I think it's a patriotic thing and I think it's a necessary thing and I think it's a, a, a politically and economically necessary thing to have a united Ireland, and I would be and will be really pleased when we get it. We're not about nationalising poverty or nationalising the dole queues or having a situation where someone who is alienated now will be alienated in, in, in a new Ireland. We're about trying to get different concepts of citizenship, of active citizenship, of people having real ownership of trying to make politics not just something that happens in an election every four or five years, but which is actually part of how society uh, functions. We have to be about concepts like economic rights, not just political rights, but e economic rights as well. We have to be about trying to, to be as inclusive as possible of, of an island which is only five and a half million people, trying to shape out society in a way that as many of those people as can feel actively part of that society, whether they have disabilities, whatever their, their, their gender, whatever their social background. And as Ireland changes, as, as more and more people come to Ireland from different parts of the world, we have to have a, a multicultural Ireland as well. And then we have to look at the bigger picture because Republicans have always been internationalists. And I'm, I'm very uh, taken, and I think it has put a lot of our situation into context, that even in the short time that I'll talk here, or that Peter and we will engage here, that perhaps about a thousand babies will have died from preventable diseases. A baby has just died. One every three seconds in the developing world, from preventable diseases. 50 cents straightens it out. So why we in the West can't fulfill our global responsibilities on matters like that? We, we who have so much consumerism, and I know there are big problems. I, I, I made the point that, that Ireland has the biggest gap between rich and poor of any industrialized state outside of the USA. But it's nothing in comparison to what's happening in the developing world. So I think we do have a responsibility. 
I think we do have a responsibility in terms of these big conflicts, whether it's the Middle East, whether it's Iraq, whether it's the need to reform the United Nations, whether it's the need to, to try and bring about some sense of global egalitarianism. And some may dismiss all of that and say that won't work or that can't be. It's better to try to bring that about than to simply be cynical or pathetic about it. So, I think it's very exciting times to be an Irish Republican. Uh, I don't think that the tasks ahead will be easily tackled or delivered on. And we don't have any special plan or any special blueprint that we could rule out. But I think that we have the capacity to reach out. I think we do have the capacity to listen. I think if our vision is worth anything, we have to have the competence to go before other people who have an opposite vision and say to them, tell us about your notion of the future, and this is our notion of the future. And I think in terms of Britain, and this has been one of the failures of Sinn Féin, and it's something which we are going to have to pay attention to. And, you know, when we were putting together the... Uh, the peace strategy, we reached out into the international community because we learned from other conflict resolution processes that the international community both has a duty and a role to play, but also in some situations actually played a very active role. And, and we adopted that. I mean, that, that's where the Irish-American dimension came from. It wasn't an accident. We actively went out and engaged with Irish-America and, and that led to the, the Clinton engagement and so on and so forth. So, we haven't done that in relation to Britain. And yet through the entire history of Irish republicanism, there has been an engagement and a partnership between radical and progressive opinion here in Britain and radical and progressive opinion in Ireland. So the big challenge in terms of our international outreach is to develop a situation here in Britain where people come to understand that the only relationship that is just between Ireland and Britain is one of mutual interdependence. Not one where we have a British Prime Minister with jurisdiction over the part of Ireland that I live in. There's no right to have that. I resent it. Every time I wake up in the morning, I resent the fact that a foreign government, even a benign foreign government, as long as you're not from Iraq, has, has any responsibility for my affairs or for the affairs of my neighbours or my friends or even those who are politically opposed to me. And also in terms of all of this, and I know we all have to take responsibility both for our own actions and for the consequences and everything else, the core cause of conflict in Ireland is British government involvement. That's the core cause. So we have a huge opportunity, created by dint of very hard work, to set that right. And I would like to think that uh, people here would understand and accept some responsibility for that in the time ahead. And Sinn Féin would like to be open again and how that is put together. So Sinn Féin, Sinn Féin, Sinn Féin, Sinn Féin, I think I've spoken for about 20 minutes or so. Uh, I probably left a lots of issues out, but perhaps we can tease those out uh, in the period ahead.
And thank you very much, all of you, for your attention. Goramila Margov. Can I uh, read a quote to you? I see you're drinking orange juice. Is there anything politically? No. no. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's yellow, actually. <laughs> Put a quote to you. When the internment camps opened their doors, the movement was at once supplied with leaders who knew each other's minds, who knew what they wanted to do and how they meant to do it. The men who came out took control and set about organizing the vague Sinn Féin feelings of the country into a real and vital public organization. The whole movement was coordinated and tightened. Any idea where that comes from? No. It comes from this remarkable book which I pulled out from my shelves this morning called The Victory of Sinn Féin by P.S. O'Hegarty, written in 19, 1924. And he was referring to the uh, <clears throat> what was to be a political earthquake once Republicans were released from the internment camps. The point he's making is that it was in those camps in the uh, time following the 1916 Rising when the sort of political strategies of Sinn Féin and Republicanism were, were developed and the leaders who came out knew what they wanted to do and where they were going. The reason I found it sort of prophetic was thinking back to the time in the, in the mid and later 70s when you and your colleagues were in cage 11 in what was then Long Kesh, the period when you had these important political debates. I just wanted to ask you to what extent where we are now and where Sinn Féin is now was where you expected it to be all those years ago when you were locked up in cage 11. Well, I, I had hoped that we would be uh, farther than we are at the moment, but certainly, uh, as a general answer to your question, the answer is yes. Uh, is that when the seeds of the peace strategy were really sown all those years ago? Did you really foresee it going down this kind of road? Well, I remember writing a small pamphlet at the time, and it was written uh, after a particular incident in which an IRA volunteer called Donnie Lennon, mm -hmm. uh, who actually had been in Cage 11 at the same time as me, and was released. And he and uh, someone else, another, I can't remember the name of the person, but uh, they were traveling in a the car. They were obviously under British Army surveillance. They had a, a weapon in the car, although it was uh, disarmed. And the British Army opened fire and killed Donny Lennon. The car he was driving careered into the Maguire family. Uh, the children were killed. And the peace movement mm -hmm. came out of, out of that. Uh, and I, I wrote this pamphlet called Peace in Ireland. Uh, and I, it was my first attempt. I was, I was actually provoked by the unfairness of this incident. Uh, especially for the Maguire family, for the children. I mean, the family was totally devastated by what occurred. Uh, and I, 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 I tried to deal with some of the, uh, the questions about, it was only a short pamphlet, the questions of what, uh, of what is peace and how do you get peace and, and, and so on. Now, I don't want to be given yourself or the audience the impression that, you know, that I'm this great mastermind who had all of these big ideas way back then. 
I mean, Republicans have always been essentially been about about uh, peace. Have always essentially been about you know not Pax Britannica, but about peace with justice. It was one of the one of the slogans that came out of uh, the very very early seventies. So. Uh, the, the big acceleration in, in the growth of all of that wasn't so much, I suppose, some of us coming out of the internment camp, unlike that earlier period, but the hunger strikes of 1980 and 1981. Just, just before you go on to that, what strikes me is that the way that Republicans were thinking, as it appeared to me and my colleagues in the mid and late 70s, was to carry on prosecuting what Republicans, the IRA, called <clears throat> the long war. The question really is, at that particular stage, did you envisage the long war being fought in, on, on, in, in two phases? The military phase, the military campaign, the military struggle, as you would call it, which at some stage would cease when it had achieved what was perceived to be its objectives, and then taking over with what, again, you would call the political struggle with with Sinn Féin taking the lead. I mean, was it, it's very easy to use hindsight um, when one is examining these historical movements <coughs> and moments, but because you were involved in both of them, was it perceived as such at the time? Did you see a point at which the military campaign would be superseded by the political, as you say, struggle, which is the phase that we're clearly in now and have been well, in for the past yeah. 10, 15 years? Well, I, I got myself into different bits of trouble with other Republicans. About 1977... Uh, I said that there could be no military victory, that it wasn't a military problem, it was a political problem, and there had to be a political solution. And that was heresy at that time, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, at, at other times, now, I mean, I'm, I'm not, uh, I mean, I defended the armed struggle. I would still defend the armed struggle. Uh, I don't defend everything that happened, and I repudiate some of the things that occurred. So I, I don't want to be given the impression that I'm... Uh, revising uh, history on any of this. But it was clear, and any, any thinking Republican would tell you, that uh, there had to be negotiations. Uh, IRA Republicans, I suppose, felt that they were the soldiers, and they would fight to the point where there would then be talks. Uh, I had a slightly different view in that uh, I didn't think that that would work. And I didn't believe unless you politically organized that you could hope to deliver on the type of goal that republicanism uh, was about. And you see, what, what, what changed was, not least because of the, the history of republicanism through part of the, uh, the middle of the last century, the, the, the physical force tendency was always in the ascendancy. Uh, and you know, I, I, I say that very conscious that it was the English government which brought the gun into Irish politics, <coughs> wasn't wasn't the IRA, but the military tendency was always uh, the one that was more or less in charge. Uh, so the reason why my remarks were seen as heresy was for that for that that reason. But you know, you don't go through a struggle, you don't go through jail terms, you don't go through funerals, you don't go through either taking life or having the life of your friends taken, if you're an IRA volunteer or a Republican sympathizer or a Republican activist, without thinking some of these issues uh, 
through. And it was quite clear that there had to be a political movement, organisation, party, whatever you may, you may call it. And I mean, some of the things that, some of the things that I was involved in were, were almost common sense decisions. For example, when I became the president of Sinn Féin and I, I was contrary to what is written about it, I mean, I wasn't up for the job. I, I, I did it through a sense of duty. I didn't think I was a suitable person to do it. But then that meant I was faced with the responsibility to look at the issue of abstentionism. Once you look at the issue of abstentionism, you have to realise that it's a block to building political strength. And therefore, you have to then start going about changing it. Which is why, of course, there was a split in uh, 1986. Yeah. But just, if I can just pick up the point about which was the, or who was the lead agency in the Republican movement through that period in the 70s, when it was clearly, as you say, the IRA was, if you forgive, forgive the expression, was, was, was calling the shots. The, the IRA traditionally regarded itself and saw as its justification the fact that it was the, quotes, legitimate government of the Irish Republic after the first Doyle era in, in, in 1918. Interestingly, in your book, you say, I do not believe that the Army Council is the government of Ireland. Does the Army Council still believe it? You'd have to ask the Army Council. Well, you talk to them, more than, I, to you, you <laughs> talk to them more than I do. Every, every, every interview we do comes to this point. No, I'm not asking uh, you. No, no, but you talk, no, to, the, no, you talk no. to the Army Council. You, well, know, I you don't, know their thinking. Well, do I they don't. still regard themselves as the legitimate well, 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 government of Ireland? Well, I think there are two, without trying to even put words in the mouths of the Army Council, I, I think there are two issues here. You know, it's, it's like the infallibility of the Pope, you know, you can, you can trace a theological lineage and, and prove a point if you want. Uh, or you can accept the fact that the Army Council patently is not the government of Ireland, uh, even though it may be able to trace lineage right back to mm. whenever uh, it wants. Uh, so I think it's a moot point. It patently isn't, uh, isn't the government of Ireland, in fact, for what it's worth. We don't have a government of Ireland. We have a, a government in a part of the island of Ireland, the Republic or the South or the Free State, depending on your disposition, uh, which is a sovereign government. And no matter about its roots at the time of the treaty and the Civil War, uh, has, has, has built upon all of that and has to be recognised as a legitimate government with legitimate institutions and agencies and, and so on. That isn't to say that you, could, that you have to be uncritical of those agencies or institutions and what, what Sinn Féin wants to do and indeed what the, the theory and the political objectives and policy demands of all of the parties in the southern institutions are about, is about bringing about a united Ireland to actually change and, 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 and to get rid of partition. You go on to write in the book, uh, Sinn Féin will be in government in the north in the time ahead but we will only consider government in the South if that advances the process of change and the struggle for equality. Neither could we proceed without a real strategy for Irish unity. It's page 14 if you want to check your books. Um, but the problem is that although clearly your aim is to win as many seats in uh, Doyle as, as possible, and you make it clear that you're only interested in, in going into a coalition government on certain circumstances, the T-shirt Bertie Hearn recently made it absolutely clear that he wasn't in the business of, 
of sharing power in any coalition government with Sinn Féin. He wasn't even in business of uh, being in a minority government supported by Sinn Féin. In other words, there appears to be a... This may be political rhetoric anyway, and things change. The IRA was never going to decommission. But isn't, isn't that a, a problem that you face? If the aim ultimately is to be the majority nationalist Republican, nationalist Republican Party in the South and in the North and get into government in the South and government in the North, which is steps on the road to United Ireland, isn't one of the blocks the fact that the Taoiseach, Fianna Foil, doesn't want to know about it? Well, I'm not so sure about that. Uh, That's what he said. I know that. That's why I'm not so sure about it. <laughs> uh, You're not saying you don't trust politicians, eh? No, no, no. I just don't trust politicians in the run-on to elections because they'll say whatever they feel is necessary. But, I mean, you're actually asking the wrong question. The question isn't whether Fianna Fáil would be in government with Sinn Féin. The question is whether Sinn Féin would be in government with Fianna Fáil. And that's the right question. Well, that only depends on Sinn Féin gaining sufficient support and seats to be in that position. No, it depends on that, of course, and we shouldn't take that for granted. There's a lot written about you know, how well Sinn Féin is going to do, but I don't think we should take the voters for granted. I, uh, we don't have a mandate. Well, we do have a bigger mandate than the PDs who are in government, and interestingly enough, sought a mandate. For those of you who don't know this, uh, the coalition government in the South is made up of the PDs, Progressive Democrats and Fianna Fáil. And the Progressive Democrats sought a mandate on the basis that Fianna Fáil was dishonest and couldn't be trusted. And that they wanted to put into government to keep Fianna Fáil honest. So Bertie went into government with them, which says a lot about, about, uh, about that. But anyway, the, point, the real point is this. Sinn Féin will only look at the issue of coalition in the context that I outlined. And I'm not interested in being in government for the sake of being in government. And I would like to think that the judgment of Sinn Féin's successes, if you want to look 10 years up the road and come back to tonight, will not be how many seats we've won or how many votes we get or where we are, where we're not in government. It will be measured in what changes of a positive kind we have brought about. And I think that's actually the way that you, that, that you should judge parties like ours, which see ourselves very much as agents of uh, change. So a judgment, if we had the mandate on whether we should go into coalition, would be and whether that would advance the process of change. Well, but, you've, but you've got to build up your political base in the South as part of your long-term strategy yeah, on the road to United yeah, Ireland. Absolutely. And it seems to me that not the only reason, but one of the reasons why the IRA made its historic decision to do what it did in, in, in July was because the IRA recognised, and you and Martin McGuinness and others helped, them, helped persuade them, that, that Sinn Féin could not realistically expect to expand its base beyond its core support in the South as long as Sinn Féin was perceived by many of the electorate to have its own standing army. So the, the act of decommissioning and the effective disbandment of the IRA, and that's something we can talk about in a minute, was a prerequisite, part of the strategy of building the, the critical support in the South that is your aim, because that's critical on the road to, to the United Ireland that you... Are yeah, well, it is, it is critical that we... That we, uh, we couldn't do it with, with, with an, a, a secret private army. Well, 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 let that me, was perceived. well, let me sort of reverse out of that question and come back into it again. The big problem, and I, I appealed to the IRA in April, the big problem, as far as I could see, was that eventually the peace process was going to go down the tubes. 
What was the big problem? From, from the Republican point of view and from the IRA point of view, no matter what anybody else wants to think, they were in the 10th or 11th year of cessations. The, 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 the unionist paramilitaries were still killing people. There were attacks, even you know, last July, August, attacks in Catholic churches, schools, homes were uh, firebombed and so on. There were blast bomb attacks. Uh, there are still more British troops in the north of Ireland than there are in Iraq. Uh, Ireland is still partitioned. So whatever anybody else thought, the IRA felt that it had to deliver big time. Uh, but the process was not moving forward. So it struck me that that couldn't, you know, the centre won't hold. The, 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 the vacuum was going to be filled at some point. And it seemed to me that for other reasons that the Irish government had decided that there was going to be a, a stall in the process given the collapse last December of, of the effort to get Ian Paisley on board. And it could, with some abandon, attack Sinn Féin. And all of that was poisoning the atmosphere even more. So, so the, the first, the first uh, motivation was to leapfrog over all that uh, and to remove the IRA in the first instance as an excuse for those who didn't want the process to develop. And then secondly, and this was to deal more with unionists than any other uh, category in, in the island of Ireland, that those who had genuine concerns about the IRA, even though it's illogical you know, that, 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 that they would imagine that in some way we could get the power sharing arrangements back in place and we could get all of that working and flowing ahead, and then the fear that the IRA would then come over the hill and, and re restart a war. It was just absurd, but still some people have that fear, so that had to be uh, removed the top as, as, as well. The business of building political strength in the south or building right across the island uh, is going to be slower, as we have seen, than, than simply removing the IRA from the equation. It, it, it has to be about what I was saying in my remarks about actually building a political party. And, you know, but you couldn't do that. I'm not disputing that part of your thesis. I'm simply saying it was wider than that. Mm. And, and, and the concerns were more about the future of the peace process. You see, people with IRA records have been elected in the uh, South. Martin Ferris was a convicted gun runner. His, 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 his election took place against the most vicious campaign of the litigation against him. I mean, the whole election was focused. He topped the poll. Uh, Arthur Morgan, uh, another uh, uh, TD who was uh, imprisoned, of having been arrested on an IRA mission. So, so, it, so it, we shouldn't imagine that, that, that the IRA, or membership of the IRA, and this is replete in Irish history from Eamon de Valera, in fact, from 1918, IRA background has never been, or imprisonment has never been a bar or a block. Uh, so the main motivation behind what I was trying to do, and in fairness, I didn't do it. And the IRA did it. And let's be, yeah, let's you, be fair about this. That's fair enough, but I mean, they, they're the people who took yeah. the decisions. And, and they, they took, I think, what is the most courageous decision because and I've said this to you before in interviews, it is, it is easier to make war than it is to make peace. It's easier to stand on your dignity. It's easier not to give. It's easier to uh, sort of 
get angry. It's easier to be negative in a situation where nobody else is moving. It's much more difficult and I think much more courageous to do what the IRA did. Against some difficult emotional and still yet, uh, I won't say convulsions, but certainly Republicans haven't fully absorbed the import of all that occurred. The IRA has the IRA has now decommissioned, and according to General de Chastelin and his colleagues, has decommissioned totally. Has the IRA disbanded? Is it no longer an IRA? Well, there's clearly an IRA, yes. But without uh, arms. Yes. So it's so it's. So how is it an army? Well, I'm not going to argue about any of this with you. Uh, it's, it's the nature, and these are probably very legitimate questions, that uh, when we talk about Sinn Féin and when the IRA has exited stage left, that the focus becomes the IRA. And it's always uh, a matter of some particular uh, amusement to me that that is the uh, But it's not the amusement the to the unionist that you have to convince that the IRA is no longer a threat, it has decommissioned. I mean, it's not, not me who's saying this, I'm simply addressing no, I understand the concerns that. that you're fully aware of. Yeah, and, 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 and for those reasons, therefore, I may decide not to enter into some of the ground you're opening up, because while you may be a remarkable advocate of some of these questions, far better be deal with unionists on those issues directly okay, face-to-face. I'll, I'll come to unionists in a moment. Is, is the war over? Yes, from Republicans' point the, of view, yes. The war is over? Yes. Was the robbery of the Northern Bank devised in part to provide pensions for IRA veterans? I would, uh, I would, I would imagine not, but... Uh, what but, was it designed for then? Well, again, we're into one of these, uh, one of these interesting issues that uh, there has not been one thread of evidence produced it may be asserted, it may be alleged, it may be carried as fact in the media that the IRA was involved. Do you believe the IRA wasn't involved? I believe the IRA when they say they weren't involved. Do you believe they weren't involved? Yes, I believe they weren't involved. Just going on to where we go from here, the problem again which you've uh, referred to in, in your address is reaching out to unionists. And I know that for many years, from the mid-80s onwards, you and some of your colleagues have actually been doing that quite seriously behind the scenes, and the road to Good Friday is, uh, you know, is illustration of that. But now you're at a critical stage where, having persuaded David Trimble to share power with Sinn Féin, that many of us thought would never happen, you've now somehow got to convince Dr Ian Paisley and the DUP to do exactly the same. And you say again in the book, it's not a question of, of if, but when. How do you seriously believe Dr. Paisley, given what we all know about Dr. Paisley and his views, which have been consistent over 30, 40 years, what makes you believe that in the end he will sit down with Sinn Féin in government and, as you say again in the book, accept Sinn Féin, a Sinn Féin member, probably Martin McGuinness, as second minister? Why do you think that really is going to happen? Because he knows in his heart he wouldn't get a better second minister. <laughs> but what about, what does he know in his head? Well, it, uh, Why do you think he's going to do it? 
Well, first of all, first of all, first of all, I don't know if he will. And and some days I think he might, and some days I think he never will. Has he spoken to you yet? No. Have you spoken to him? Yes. Yeah. And and uh, I made it a point as best I could when the assembly was up and running to be there when he was speaking and to listen to what he had to say. Uh, I also had a, a an amusing uh, engagement with him. I was coming out of the lift in in the BBC. And he was waiting to get into the lift, and he refused to get in while I was there. Uh, and for one mad and sane moment, I thought when I came out, if I could run up to the next flight of stairs, <laughs> 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 that I could keep him going up and down for a long time. But uh, you see, if you examine, if you examine it, oh, the vision that Ian Paisley outlined in, in the 1960s of a Protestant parliament for a Protestant people. Can't happen. Everybody knows that. Can't I don't think happen. he's any longer advocating that. I'm, I'm not saying he is, but I'm just stating factually it can't happen. Uh, the, the part that he has played in, in you know, and I understand the need to be constructive and positive, and I think the Paisley deal is the best deal. I think if we can, if we can get a deal done with Ian Paisley, obviously in the context of the Good Friday Agreement, and we came very, very close to that last December, that's the best, the best possible deal. But I'm also mindful, I mean, I, I, I came into politics, I was going to uh, school in 1964 when Ian Paisley threatened to come into the street which I had to uh, travel along to remove the Irish flag from the Sinn Féin election rooms. And even though I come from a Republican family, I, I wasn't politically conscious. Uh, but myself and all the other students became very politically conscious as a result of that experience. He, he, he said if the IUC didn't come in and take out the flag that he would. And of course the IUC obliged and smashed into the election office and took the flag out and the Republicans put the flag back and there were days of civil unrest and so on and so on and so on. But, but and and Ian, Ian Paisley has, has actually formed more paramilitary organisations than you have made television programmes. Uh, Sorry, just say it again, not the television programme bit, but he, did you say he's formed? Oh yeah, yeah the third force. Uh, Ulster resistance. They weren't really paramilitary organisations. Well, with respect, and you, you're the expert in all of this. Uh, I mean, they weren't like the UFF, UDA, UVF at all. They were sort of cardboard cutouts. Well, they were well, propaganda. Well, they were theatre for Paisley. They well, weren't serious paramilitary. They didn't well, do anything. Well, tell the victims. Well, the, th the third force, I mean, that, that's a detail. But no, it isn't a detail because that's, you know. They didn't go around killing Catholics. They were a, a sort of piece of Paisley theatre. Those well, how many, how many UVF or UDA men have said that the worst thing that ever happened to them was that they listened to me in That's not the same thing. Anyway, well, well, we, but, we can but, agree but, to differ on that. No, no but that's, that's, that's come to the point I'm going to make. Paisley did not form paramilitary organisations that went around killing Catholics. He did not. He Paisley, Paisley formed... There's a difference between somebody saying, I would never have joined the UVF or UDA, UFF, <laughs> okay, okay. had I not heard Ian Paisley, and, and saying Ian Paisley oh, formed... Okay, da, da, da. I think okay. Ian Paisley here. formed Ulster Resistance. 
Ulster resistance onto the, and you know this better than me, onto the tutelage of British military intelligence, imported along arms. with the UVF yeah. and the UDA, imported arms. Interestingly enough, some of those people robbed a bank to buy the, uh, the arms. They got it from the old apartheid South African regime. They brought it into the north of Ireland. Uh, the weapons were used in a series of killings, the, the Milltown Cemetery killings, the Bookies killings, an attack on my home. Anywhere where there was a grenade used, it came from that shipment. Now, I'm saying all of that to paint up the difficulty of the challenge, because it may be, because of all of that history and because of all of his involvement, that Ian Paisley may not want to go into government with Sinn Féin. But it may also be that he realises, as I realise, that if you want to try and make your vision a reality, then you have to be at the point in the political system where it's possible to do that. And this may be the only chance he has at this point in his political life to actually be the first minister and to try and represent. And I have no doubt, I mean, whatever I think of Ian Paisley, I have no doubt that uh, he got involved in politics because he, he wanted to represent the views of those who thought the same as himself. So for, for all of my opposition to Ian Paisley and for all of his record of involvement in the, uh, the conflict, he would do a far better job of representing people in the north of Ireland than any British minister, because a British minister cannot represent the people from the north of Ireland, as well as someone who was elected by those people. Ian Paisley would no doubt agree with that, but it seems to me that what it all comes down to is, is, is a matter of trust. Now, you have strong views, and, and I've no doubt all of your colleagues have very equally strong views about Ian Paisley because of his history and the way that you perceive him and the, what you regard as the damage he's done to you know, your colleagues, your comrades, and your community. But nevertheless, you are prepared to trust him. You are prepared to go into government with him. Yeah. The question is, is Ian Paisley and the DUP prepared also to do the same? And it comes down to a matter of trust. Right? The problem is, and this is not me saying this, but as far as Ian Paisley and the DUP are concerned, and many unions, is that they believe, rightly or wrongly, and you'll say wrongly, that you and Martin McGuinness and others are unreconstructed members of the IRA and they cannot trust you. You somehow got to persuade them. You'll say, that's, that's irrelevant. But it's what's in their minds that you've got to change. And how do you go about doing that? Clearly, decommissioning was a huge, huge step forward. And interestingly, Ian Paisley has not ruled out what we're talking about. I mean, he hasn't rubbished yeah, yeah, it that's such. Right, that's right. Well, how, I mean, how, do you, how do you persuade Ian Paisley well, with the well, DUP? I, I, I'm, this, this issue comes up all the time, this issue of trust. And I, I have to say, I don't, and because a lot of journalists say to me they don't trust you. The Tories don't trust Labour. A lot of people here don't trust Yeah, but Labour didn't have a private army. Hold on. They did. It's called the British Army and it's in Ireland at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> but but Fine Gael doesn't trust Fianna Fáil. Now, of course, the situation in my country is different because we're all coming out of conflict. So the fact is that people did kill people and people suffered in the, in the course of all of that. But I still think the issue of trust is overstated. I think it's overstated. Uh, I, I think that, uh, you know, you can see it with the way even unionist uh, politicians 
uh, move about, uh, go, go to different events. They know they're under no threat from uh, the IRA. And of course you make a point. You, the point is not so much that we're prepared to trust them, but we're prepared to trust ourselves. And we're prepared to deal with them on their terms. And without sounding at all patronising, we're prepared to take the chance. Now, they have to take the chance. And they have to have the confidence to uh, take the chance. And they have to have the confidence, not for their own sake, but for the sake of everybody else who has survived the conflict. Because I think those of us who have survived the conflict have a responsibility to make sure it never happens again. And the difficulty with unionism, as I may, if I may say so, isn't so much that they don't trust us. Many unionists, no unionist of any prominence, they may say it to you privately and they say it to me privately sometimes, but no unionist of prominence has ever stood up and said, we were responsible for the mess that existed. We discriminated, we held power to ourselves, uh, we, we didn't try to be inclusive, we ran a sectarian outfit. I mean, some unionists will even with great pomposity argue that discrimination never happened. So I think that's part of the problem and I think that's, that's a big thing. That's a big thing. I know it was a big thing for Republicans you know, when the likes of me stood up and said Republicans have to take responsibility for their actions or that action was wrong or, or, or wrong things have been done by our side. I mean, that, that was a big thing for Republicans to to hear that. Uh, so I think that's the difficulty that a lot of unionists, a lot of ordinary unionists, and I meet unionists all the time. I don't want to exaggerate that because you know, I probably meet a certain type of unionist. Uh, they're mostly middle class. They're mostly middle-aged. Uh, and, but, 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 and, and as you say yourself, we've been meeting unionists for a very, very long time. Uh, and the quality of the engagement is different now than it was 20 years ago. I mean, I mean, some of the early engagements were really, really, really robust. And if, 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 if we had stopped them uh, at the angry bits, it, it would have been a, a, a huge failure. But luckily, both they and we didn't stop at the angry bits, the bits where we were angry at them or they were angry at us. We just, we just persevered and kept coming back. And some of those people are now friends. Well, and, and we've learned to disagree and to be, to be companionable. One of, one of the, the, the quiet little moments in, in the, the process with the UUP was uh, in, in Hillsborough Castle where there was a blazing row at, at a quite a sizable meeting and everybody went out and had a cup of coffee and then came back in again. And for me that was, it's a very natural, normal thing, but for me that was one of the the defining moments in the peace process. Well, they came back in again. Everybody came back in again and started the row again. <laughs> but, but in other words, the ability to actually disagree and to, to, to put your case in a robust way and, 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 and so on. So, I mean, there, there are huge difficulties within, within uh, unionism which, 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 which have got to do with the defensive nature of that particular political position which have got to do with insecurities, which have got to do with the relationship with the rest of us, which have got to do with lots of, lots of issues, which we, are, we, we have yet to learn. We, we have yet to, if I may say so, to get our heads around it. And we will only be able to get our heads around it when unionists feel empowered to come along and tell us. And, 
and screaming at us or refusing to talk to us or insulting us hasn't made us go away. You know, I mean, I mean Ian, Ian Paisley uh, says five elections ago that, and he, and he appears with a sledgehammer. You may call it Paisley Theatre. He appears at a press conference with a sledgehammer to smite Sinn Féin. Feel miserably. Sinn Féin's now the largest uh, pro-agreement party in the north of Ireland. So I'm sure there are, there are people in there who are, who are figuring all of this uh, out. And the UUP took the decisions it took pragmatically because some people there figured out a couple of things. They couldn't stay outside the tent. Their boycott of the Anglo-Irish agreement and all of, of the British government and the Irish government, that, that, that wasn't working. The demographics of the situation meant the situation wasn't uh, tenable. And the growing strength of republicanism meant that pragmatic, uh, probably from a union's point of view, slightly visionary people uh, thought the time to get a deal was nigh and, 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 and copper fasten it down. The other type of unionists that I meet are working class unionists who, who don't have the luxury of the shipyard or the patronage that went with it when, when those were the main industries, who, 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 who can't look at the South as a crippled, impoverished, priest-ridden statelet. The Celtic Tiger has changed all of, all of that, and who wonder about the value of the Union at, at this point in their lives. And you know, my, my, my constituency includes the Shankill, a proud, once proud, uh, loyalist working class area, which now has the lowest attainment levels in education. And I think that's a disgrace. Jerry, I'm going to interrupt you, forgive me, because I just want to ask you, my, my time's running out and the audience have got lots of things I'm sure they want to ask you. I just wanted to ask, ask you a couple of things about Al-Qaeda. Do you regard Al-Qaeda as a terrorist organisation? Yes. Oh, well, I don't know if they are an organisation. I mean, Well, uh, do you regard 9-11, the attacks on New York and Washington, as terrorist attacks? Yes. Do you regard the attacks of the 7th of July in London this year by four suicide bombers, British-born, as terrorist attacks? Yes. Why? Because, by, by definition, <coughs> and governments, can act, governments commit acts of terrorism as well, by definition, uh, terrorism is uh, violence against the civilian population, by definition. And that's what those attacks... But the IRA have used violence against the civilian population. I know the argument would be that civilians are the inevitable casualties of war, but people looking outside of this discussion would say, yes, but the IRA, people don't always make the distinction, has also killed lots of civilians. So what's the difference? Well, again, you know, this is, a, this is an issue. One person's terrorist is another person's freedom fighter. Whatever we think of Al-Qaeda, and, and I'm not to be honest, well enough versed on it. And I, I don't know if, if, if there is one organization called Al-Qaeda. I'm not sure what their aims are. I don't know if they have a political uh, platform or a series of political ob objectives. They clearly are not a national liberation uh, struggle. Uh, so we could also argue about what is a terrorist attack and what isn't a terrorist attack. Uh, I think it would be more thoughtful, to be honest, to wonder what caused young British people to become so-called suicide bombers. In the same way as we address the question, and colleagues address the question, 
over the years, why did you know young men and young women from West Belfast, from your constituency, join the IRA? Why were they prepared to take up arms? And in the end, you come down to the political question. You come down yeah. to the things that you know, we've discussed over the years. And I well, with, 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 with respect, while you are the exception among uh, a number of, of esteemed journalists, and indeed, ironically, some British journalists have shed more light on, on these issues than some journalists in Ireland have done. One of the points you've made, this is my... But, my sorry, but I just, sorry. I just, I just yeah. want to follow this point. So, uh, the fact that, 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 that these events happen and, and there's a railing against Islam or against Muslims or uh, the fact that there's no big effort to sort out the Middle East or that the war in Iraq continues, you know, uh, if people in Britain, if people in Britain knew what had happened in Ireland at any time in the last 100 years, or even in the last 10 years or the last 20 years, they wouldn't allow it. But with the exception of the light that you have shown and others have shown, most people in Britain don't know. They don't know. And, 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 and here you have a situation on this island that born and bred Brits become so-called suicide bombers. You have something apparently wrong when that happens. You have always uh, justified what you refer to as the armed struggle <clears throat> by saying that the armed struggle is a response to occupation in the case of the North, the occupation as you see it, by the British Crown forces. And therefore, the campaign of the IRA, in your view, was justified against what you see, again, as the oppressor. Using that argument, is the campaign of Abu Musab al-Zakawi, who is al-Qaeda's man in Iraq, justified to oppose the oppression, the occupation of Iraq by Britain, America, and the coalition forces? Well, whether it's justified or not, or whether I think it's justified or not, is totally and absolutely irrelevant. I talked to Mr. Blair in the build-up to the war in Iraq, myself and Martin McGuinness, and we told him that they weren't getting out of Iraq. We told him that they would be fought in the cities. This is before, before this, the... This is before. Bef well before. This was in the months before when all the controversy and dispute and argument. We told him not to go near the place. We told him certainly not to go near the place without a UN uh, mandate. What I, did you say was going to happen? That, that they were going to be that they were going to be fought every inch, and I know nothing about Iraq. I know nothing about Iraq except what I read in the in the, in the broad media. But I just know, you put the British Army in somewhere, it will behave the way it's trained to behave. It's as simple, it's straightforward. They're not in there with powder puffs. They're in there to do whatever. And I have no truck for for Saddam Hussein or any of the, or any of that. And I also said the same thing. Uh, to George Bush and, and at a meeting which we did at, uh, at Hillsborough because I just, don't, I just don't see the sense and if we learn nothing about Ireland you know if we learn nothing I mean when, 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 when there were big campaigns coming here about issues in Ireland people here used to say they're using Ireland as a laboratory you know but pe people used to say you will see shoot to kill here you will see plastic bullets here, or you will see police powers, or you will see 
different things. Now, obviously states have the right to protect themselves from attack and there's a duty on a government to protect uh, citizens and obviously there's a right to use uh, force and, and, and all, all of that. Uh, but I just think that uh, I just think that the alienation that occurs and the polarization that occurs and and the arrogance that that governments in the West think they, that that you know that, that, that they can behave they can behave. I mean, if 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 if, 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 if the Iraqis invaded the USA, the USA and citizens in the USA would behave in the same way. Some would fight, some would give up, some would collaborate. But enough would fight to make it very, very difficult. And that's what's happening in Iraq, and it needs sorted out, and the troops should be out of Iraq. Jerry, thank you very much.